Hello, and welcome to the Homeland Podcast. Step out to find out it's wet and warm, wet and warm. Tra-la-la, 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 tra-la-la. The one-night count that we did in January of this year showed um, just under a thousand vehicles and we estimated about 1500 people living in those thousand vehicles. Hmm. Um, it's the uh, based on that count of the unsheltered homeless population, people living in vehicles account for about 40% of the unsheltered population. So it's the biggest you know chunk of the unsheltered population. One of the ways that housing insecurity is arriving in cities is through the growth of people who are turning to vehicular living as an affordable living arrangement in the urban context. Whether sleeping in recreational vehicles or simply in their own cars, people who have been priced out of traditional housing stock are now turning to the public space of the right-of-way to find a safe place to sleep. Yet, with the growth of this type of housing, municipalities are finding the need to develop new policy tools to address the safety, security, and concerns about how people are using this public resource. To discuss this phenomenon, I sat down with Seattle City Council member Mike O'Brien. O'Brien's tenure has seen the issue of vehicular housing or vehicular living grow, and recognizing the limitations of current policies, Council member O'Brien has proposed draft legislation try a new approach in Seattle. I hope you enjoy our exploration of his observations and ideas for a new approach. When you were first elected in 2009, the issue of vehicular housing, in my impression, wasn't a a big one in Seattle. How, over the last eight years, has that conversation evolved and how has the city responded to it? So when I first got elected, we were in the depths of a recession. And so vehicular living for me personally was not an issue um, that I was aware of. But very shortly after I got elected, it got on my radar. Um, There was a story in Real Change about... um, And Real Change is our local change newspaper. Yeah, the the newspaper that um, homeless and formerly homeless people sell. Um, And the... The story followed a couple people that lived in RVs and the reality that they face trying to survive. Um, and it was great for me to, to have a peek into an individual's life and what it's like living in an RV and the challenges they face um, trying to navigate a system and get back into housing. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, the, the story had a sad ending as is one of the residents died um, because of health complications Mm -hmm. by the end of the story. Um, But it also highlighted for me that we have this, um, a reaction to people living in RVs that, hey, this isn't allowed. You know, you can't just camp on our streets. Um, And so the tool we traditionally used to address that was we will put up no overnight parking signs um, in certain areas so that they can't be there. Um, And then we would proceed to ticket them until they had enough tickets that we could tow and impound their vehicle. And that was our solution to the crisis. You know, the crisis was largely one of, I don't want to see people living in RVs as opposed to there are hundreds of people living in RVs. What do we do with them? Um, you know, in the recession, we didn't have a lot of resources. And so at the time, um, you know, we were cutting programs. We ended up working with some churches 
to create what ultimately became known as the Road to Housing Program. But essentially, churches were willing to provide um, their parking lot for RVs to come park in, and then they would also provide access to restrooms um, and maybe showers or even a dry place to hang their clothes, charge their phones, um, kind of varied by church. But the sense of like, hey, these folks are living in RVs. We want to get them back into housing. Um, our policies today are actually taking the RVs and putting them into tents or into doorways. That's getting them worse off. We need a better policy. Hmm. Um, unfortunately, here we are in 2017, and i got to just admit that the city of Seattle really doesn't have a better policy around people living in their vehicles than we did eight years ago. And the problem's gotten significantly bigger. Yeah, you mentioned hundreds. Do you know what, know what the number is now? The, the one-night count that we did in January of this year showed um, just under 1,000 vehicles, and we estimated about 1,500 people living in those 1,000 vehicles. Hmm. Um, it's the uh, based on that count of the unsheltered homeless population, people living in vehicles account for about 40% of the unsheltered population. So it's the biggest, you know, chunk of the unsheltered population. Um, you know, if you're living in a tent in, an unsanctioned tent encampment or if you're sleeping in a doorway, um, we have programs to work with you, but we really don't have a program for folks living in RVs. So you mentioned the church site. I think there were some other steps that the city tried out as well. Uh, there's an a RV lot program, I think, that was using some publicly used land. Do you want to explain that one? Yeah. So um, as the program, uh, sorry, as the, the crisis has gotten bigger and we've seen more and more people living in RVs, um, we, we did uh, a year and a half ago implement some programs to try to try to address it. So one of the programs was an on-street permitting um, program. So we designated a few areas in the city where you could get a permit to hang in your window mm -hmm. that allowed you to park on the street in a certain area. And we provided um, dumpster and we provided porta potties. Mm -hmm. um, we also found a lot that the city owned. It was a, a construction staging lot that we didn't need for about a year. Um, and set up a 24-hour um, kind of monitored RV encampment there. Um, the, unfortunately, I mean, it actually worked pretty well. We were able to get 20 RVs off the street. These are the, the largest ones that I think were the most intrusive to neighborhoods. Um, the challenge was that the staffing model that the, the mayor's office set up was we want 24-hour security there, and that's really expensive. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. So to have 24-hour paid staffing for 20 RVs, sure. um, you know, we were spending, you know, probably thousands of dollars a month per RV to maintain it. And so at the end of the three-month program, um, they looked at the cost analysis, which they probably could have looked at at the front end because they knew what they were paying for this and said, wow, this is really expensive, which, yes, it was. Um, and so they shut it down and haven't done anything since. Um, and so some point to that is like, hey, we tried some stuff. It's failed. Um, let's just move on. I don't really know to where because <laughs> um, the people in the RVs, you know, until we get them housing are still out there. Um, I believe that we need to focus try things similar to what we've done with tent encampments, where we've actually made sanctioned tent encampments. Um, we don't provide 24-hour staff. They're self-monitored. The, the community that's living there works on arrangements where they provide security details and um, they do cleanup and all that kind of thing. And so I think a similar model could work with RVs, which would be much, much less expensive for uh, the city. 
And before we get to the legislation that you've proposed um, around some of those issues, I wanted to unpack who these people are a little bit. Yeah. Because I think that um, there's a really easy tendency amongst the public to kind of group people who are living in RVs with the, the unsheltered who are living on the street. Um, and and I've heard that those are quite distinct populations in, in certain ways and maybe overlap in, in some ways. What's your kind of thinking on that issue right now? There, um, there are overlaps and they are distinct. I mean, the first thing I think we just got to say is if there are 1,500 people living in vehicles in the city of Seattle, there are 1,500 different stories as to why they're there. And I think we got to be really careful about um, trying to create a couple buckets and say folks fit into these. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, in the years that I've been out there, I've had a chance to meet a lot of people that are living in RVs. Some of them have been willing to um, share their story about how they got there. Um, and so I can talk about some of those experiences. So um, uh, I've been used, talking about RVs today, but there's also a lot of people that are just living in vehicles, too. Um, those are less obvious. They don't stand out as much. Um um, sometimes you can tell that there's someone living in there because it's full of stuff. <laughs> um, but there's a lot of people that when I talk to um, who are living in a vehicle um, and ask, uh, you know, what's their experience being homeless? And they say, well, I'm not homeless. I'm just living in my vehicle temporarily as I wait to get into housing. <laughs> and so they don't see themselves. You know, they're just, hey, you know, something bad happened. You know, I got laid off. I couldn't pay rent. I got evicted, but I'm working on a couple things. I still got a, I got a new job, but I don't have enough money to get back into housing. So I'm just here temporarily. And these are folks that um, often haven't experienced homelessness before. They are not aware of all the systems and support out there in the city. And so they don't know how to access or haven't even tried. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, so a lot of these folks actually have been um, gone through the programs at the churches um, and have been able to connect to, to services and get back into housing. Mm-hmm. Um, like anything, you know, the quicker, you know, the quicker that we can get someone who just exited housing back into housing, much higher success rate. When you've been living on the street for a couple of years, whether you're living in a vehicle or in a tent, you know, um, all sorts of crises start to compound upon you and it gets harder and harder to get someone to be housed. Um the, you know, some of the people I talked to who are living in RVs, um, uh, I remember meeting a woman who um, had worked for 15 years uh, at a boat builder and um, didn't have health insurance. This was a couple years ago, so it was before uh, Obamacare, um, and got a hip injury and uh, has been on some state list waiting to get um, surgery for three or four years, but was no longer able to work in her field. Mm-hmm. So she's trying to find some work here. She loved her employer. Her employer loved her, but you know, she couldn't work anymore. Mm-hmm. And so, and this was her reality. She was living with her dog in an RV trying to, you know, just keep things together. Right. And, you know, you think about living in a tent, um, or living, um, on the street. Um, you know, when I talk to folks, it's like, I, I can go into a shelter overnight, but then I have to take all of my belongings with me. How do I go to a job interview when I got a plastic bag full of stuff? <laughs> you know, I, I just I'm not going to get hired. Where do, and where do I set that? Where do I leave it? Um, and so folks will say, well, I'd rather live in a tent than in a shelter because at least I can put my stuff in there and zip it up. Um, obviously, it's not particularly safe, and if you got anything of valuable, it probably gets rifled. And so you look at someone who's in an RV; they're like, it's not great, but I can lock the door. Um, my stuff is my stuff. No one can really mess with it. 
Um, and so, you know, folks that are living homeless, a lot of times they feel like if I'm in an RV, that's, I'm doing pretty good relative to the thousands of other people right now. Right. Um, the, you know, the challenge is there's a gentleman that um, uh, I've had an email exchange with. He's a uh, senior, and he's got Alzheimer's. Mm-hmm. Uh, he's got diabetes. Um, living in an RV in one of the uh, encampments that's kind of pseudo-sanctioned by the city. Mm-hmm. Um, but he got he, he got towed, and... Um, and someone at the city was talking to him. He's like, you know, they never gave me a warning. Or maybe they did and I don't remember it because I don't have very good short-term memory anymore. Right. right. And he's sleeping on a mattress in an RV lot now because his RV was impounded. Mm. You know, to be clear, he should be in housing, right? You know, what does it say about our society if a 65-year-old man with Alzheimer's and diabetes is sleeping on a mattress in a parking lot? Um and it's and he's connected with the the mayor's office of you know senior services. I mean, he is plugged in, but we have seven thousand people on the wait list to get into housing, and apparently he's not at the top. There are people worse off than him that are prioritized to get housing before he does, and yet that's where he is. Um, and so, I I fundamentally think that um, everyone should has has a human right to be in housing, and a city as wealthy as Seattle has no excuse not to be providing housing. Um, And so I want to hold that out there as this is what we need to be doing. And at the same time, I have thousands of people that are living on the street, including, you know, 1,500 in vehicles, um, and I can't snap my finger and create the housing for them. How do I do as little harm and as much stabilization on that population as I can until I can get them the housing? Mm. So that's a perfect segue to talking about kind of what your colleagues in council and executive office are thinking about right now, because you've put forward some um, some ideas about what to do about this issue. Yeah. Can you talk about those a little bit, little bit more in yeah. depth? So um, I've been frustrated, frankly, that the city has not come up with a strategy around vehicular living. Um, I've talked to some of the folks that um, could be doing the strategy that worked for the mayor, um, and they, frankly, share that frustration. They say, Mike, I don't I don't know how to solve this problem. And I'm like, I get it. I don't know either. Um, But we got to be able to come up with something that's better than what we're doing today. And I believe we're at a point now. I mean, we're going through a transition in our mayor's office, so we'll see where it comes out. But there's people that seem to agree that we need to, you're right, we need to have a strategy around this. I don't need to have a plan on day one that solves the crisis for people living in vehicles, but at least a strategy that says, hey, we're going to reduce the harm being done to the individuals and reduce the concern that our neighbor neighborhood and businesses are complaining about when they see RVs pop up in their neighborhood. Um, so I'm hoping that we're on a path to doing something. Along those lines, um, I, I've proposed some legislation. It's in draft form still, but it's it's out there in the kind of public realm at the moment um, as a starting point to say, here are some of the things that I think we need to do. Um, so one is, I think we need to recognize that the people that are living in vehicles, if we give them a good housing option, they would take that. Um, but to be clear, a good housing option for them is probably not a shelter. 
Um, in the RV, they have the privacy that they get um, and they can lock the door and go somewhere. Going into a shelter is not a step up for them. That's a step down. And so when people say, well, I offered the guy in the RV a shelter and he refused to take it, I think, well, that's a pretty rational decision, frankly. Um, when we can offer them an apartment that they can sustainably afford for indefinitely, what we'll see is they'll say, I'm done with my RV. And we do have that success when we can provide those options. Mm-hmm. Um, so we got to be finding those options for people. In the meantime, we got to recognize that simply saying, I don't like you on my street, um, make it illegal for them to be here, um, may solve the problem for the business owner or resident who's disturbed by someone on their street. And I want to be clear, the, the complaints from business owners and residents about these are fair complaints. You know, they talk about there's human waste on the sidewalk in the morning. No one should have to deal with that. Um, similarly, if you're living in a vehicle that doesn't have a bathroom, you have to go to the bathroom at some point. And I don't know where they're going to go if we don't provide any bathrooms for them. And so we're left in this situation where you have the, you know, biological needs of an individual um, and a, a public health crisis. Um, and the answer is not to simply outlaw the people that are going to the bathroom on the street. We have to give them a place to go to the bathroom. We have to give them a place to be. Um, what I've suggested is creating safe places for people to park, similarly to what we've done with churches, but at a much bigger scale. Um, for some individuals, that can be you know, city-owned or city-rented lots and say, look, um, you know, your needs are unique enough that for you, this individual, with, if maybe you have mobility needs or mental health issues or addiction issues or whatever it is, um, we, would like, we think the best place for you to be is in a parking lot. Um, where uh, maybe it's fenced off or not, but, you know, and there's going to be a half a dozen folks there and we're going to give you a porta potty and we'll have someone check in on you every couple days and we're working to get you stabilized and into housing, but it may be a couple years. Um, that way that individual um, hopefully is stabilized. The harm that they're feeling is reduced. Um, and the person who's on the street, uh, the business or homeowner that's been frustrated by them is no longer in direct conflict. Um, with a thousand vehicles out there, we are unlikely to have enough parking spots for everybody. So there's a lot of people that are going to need to be on the streets for a while. Um, and so identifying who are the folks that can be on the streets and where on the streets can they be. Um, right now, we've never said where RVs can be. We simply will go around the city and say, well, here's another place you can't be. And as we've gotten uh, fewer and fewer places where people can live in vehicles, um, they get more and more concentrated, typically in our industrial areas, um, uh, because I think from a policy, that's the, it's not even a policy really, but it's, they're complaining the least. Um, and so we end up with this concentration of vehicular residents in, in industrially zoned areas. And now we're hearing from industrial folks, why is it on us to be responsible for hosting all the people living in RVs? Right. And it's, it shouldn't be, that's not a policy. And so do we find, um, do we find streets that are scattered throughout the city where we say, hey, it's appropriate for you to be here. Um, we probably wouldn't necessarily change the laws around it, but maybe we deprioritize. You know, if you've got a sticker on there that says, um, I'm following the rules, you know, the local police officer, outreach worker knows who you are, keep an eye on things, making sure everything's working okay, you can stay here for a while. Mm-hmm, um, mm-hmm. And so, and I don't know what the exact answer is. My legislation is a, a draft, an attempt to say, we've got to try something. Our current system isn't working. But until we can provide housing for folks, um, 
the reality is we have people living in vehicles and living in people living in vehicles is probably better than living in tents. Um, so let's figure out how to stabilize them and get them back into housing as soon as possible. Right. Right. And so, so one challenge facing the city is kind of this, this spatial challenge of where can, where can these people go? Where's the, the appropriate place for them to be? I want you to talk a little bit more about the political side of things. Cause when I watch the, the conversation play out, it doesn't feel like a left-right liberal conservative conversation as much as it is a local in front of my house, in front of my business conversation. Yeah. Is, is that the, the dynamic that you see or, or is there, there's something else at play there that's more complex? Um, no, I think that's a lot of it. I mean, the, there's kind of a visceral reaction that folks happen have when they see poverty and are confronted with, you know, acute poverty on a daily basis. I, I feel it too. You know, when I'm, you know, when I, when I walk out of the door of the brewery and there's five RVs there and there's garbage piled up there and I see the individuals and the condition they're living in, um, you know, I have a, a reaction to that that is not a positive one. And the question is, you know, what do we do with that reaction? And it's pretty rational to say, I don't like how I feel right now. I don't like this reaction. And I'm going to call my politician and say, fix this. I don't, I shouldn't have to feel this way. Well, I think there's also a reaction of this is, this is a breakdown of society. This is, this is law and order issues who's, no one's enforcing yeah. the existing regulations and laws and that sort of thing. And, and it does turn into that pretty quickly. So folks will complain. I, just to be clear for your listeners, um, my wife has a, a business. She makes um, kimchi and sauerkraut, and she rents space in an industrial area. And she has RVs in front of her place on a regular basis. Um, and, you know, of course, all the business owners uh, on that street uh, know her and know me now. Um, <laughs> and I'm constantly having dialogue with them. And and my wife's business has been flooded because someone tried to hook something up to the hose and the thing broke and the business was flooded and they've had break-ins and things like that. Um, and so, I, you know, I, um, you know, someone on the pillow next to me is telling me stories on a regular basis of what it's like to feel that. And it's it's not fair. It's not fair to the businesses. It's not fair to the residents. Um, but it's also not fair to the individual who's caught up in this, the individual that's in the tent. Oftentimes, these are folks that are in really bad circumstances um, that aren't necessarily of their own making. Um, there's a couple things that happen. So folks will say like, hey, I, I'm not trying to discriminate against anybody, but we have laws. We have parking laws. In fact, I got a parking ticket yesterday for parking in front of my own business for 10 minutes. Yeah, I was in front of a fire hydrant, but I just needed to drop something off. And then this person who's out there flaunting the laws has been there for a week and doesn't even get a ticket. Um, that doesn't seem fair to me. And so, you know, we can talk about fairness and we can talk about um, you know, how you got to this place you are where, yes, you're maybe a struggling small business owner, but you've got capital and you, you own a business and you own your house. And what's fair, how does the individual in the RV end up there? You know, was he raised in foster care system, um, abused as a kid, um, or no health insurance? Or, you know, there's a disproportion of people that are homelessness um, are people of color. You know, like, like everything in our society, bad things happen to people of color at a much higher rate than they do to white people. And so racial discrimination throughout our system so that they didn't have access to the same opportunities that I did. I'm a white guy. Um, and so, you know, I got the brakes. They didn't. They're living in an RV. I'm pissed that they don't get ticketed and I'm getting ticketed. 
But how do we fix the system? I mean, we need to go to the top level and fix it for sure. And yet here's someone in the situation. So what do we do? Um, the other thing that I think happens, um, there's a bit of, uh, I guess I'll use the term othering that happens. Um, there are some people that at any given moment living in an RV are engaging in behavior that is completely unacceptable. You know, when you see folks that are selling drugs or, you know, shooting up with heroin, um, you know, see them stealing things so they can sell to get the next hit, um, you know, uh, sometimes abusing each other, um, vandalizing property. None of that is okay. And I want to be clear that, that I don't expect that we tolerate that. I expect our police to be out there policing that. Um, but what happens when we see someone doing that often, because we don't know who these RV campers are, is we just say, everyone living in RVs is like that one person, and they all need to go. And, you know, when you're in a big apartment building and you have a guy that plays the music loud, you don't say, kick everyone out of the apartment building because someone's playing music loud. You're like, no, let's deal with the one person. Um, it's not terribly different than what we're seeing on the national level when it comes to um, people of a different faith, like Muslims. You know, there's someone who commits a terrorist attack and it says he does it in the name of Allah. And then some people say, well, everyone who's a Muslim must do that stuff and we don't want him in our country anymore. Um, and so, you know, I think the remedy to that is the more people get to know individuals living in their vehicles, <laughs> you start to realize, oh, there's a lot of people out there that are working really hard to get back on their feet and have some really tough circumstances. And maybe they're even suffering from addiction. But let's acknowledge that addiction is... Um, a, a health condition, not just um, a lack of good morals on the individual's basis, and how do we treat that? Um, and then, yes, there are some individuals that are their behavior is unacceptable, and we need to deal with them in the, the smartest way we can through law enforcement. And there's a bunch of individuals that are just trying to survive. Um, what do we do about that? Um, trying to work with community members to find some solutions that are actually productive. So I know our, our time's coming to a close here. I want to ask you just a final question of, it feels like you're kind of, you're, you're finding your way along. And you mentioned some of the, the things that had piloted, but maybe didn't work out. Um, are there communities across the country or around the world that you're looking to as having a model? Has anyone figured this out? And what advice would you give to other communities that are, that are wrestling with these issues? The, there's some examples that we've seen um, up and down the West Coast that we look to. They're a little bit different than our circumstances in Seattle. Um, like the city of Eugene has created some safe places for folks to go. Um, I believe the city of Santa Barbara has some larger RV campgrounds. Um, a lot of these are frankly set up similar to what you would see in a you know, as a KOA campground type. Um, it may be a, a small fee or it may not be, but saying, hey, you live in an RV, there's a place in our city or town for you to go park and you can hook up and there's bathrooms and there's water. And, and, and yeah, you know, a lot of us think of that as what you do on your summer vacation. But for a lot of folks, this is just permanent housing for them now. You know, in a city like Seattle, we don't have, we don't have a lot of open space that's where we can kind of make the campground model work. Um, and so it just, it takes a slightly different form, but we could follow a similar model and just say, Hey, you know, here's where you should be. I think in general, in the city of Seattle, we tend to believe that, okay, if you're living in our city and working in our city, you should be able to live in, in stable housing and an RV is not that. Um, and so I think there's a, there's a lot of pushback in the city that says, well, let's not, you know, institutionalize RV living by making this happen. Um, I frankly would love to see everyone living in 
some sort of stable housing that's insulated and has a good secure locking door, all those things. Um, but like I said, we have 7,000 people on our housing wait list right now. Um, and we got thousands of people that are living outdoors and will likely be outdoors for a number of years. What do we do as a kind of interim emergency measure um, to get us from where we are today to where we want to be as a city? Um, and, and, and so the other cities are, are doing different versions of this. Um, the, the pilot program that we ran with churches I kind of modeled after um, some cities on the east side of Lake Washington in the Seattle area. Um, they had one or two. We got it up to about 25 or 30 spots. But still, it's a drop in the bucket compared to the challenges out there. Great. Well, thank you for taking an assertive step and trying to solve the issue and, and do something different than what's obviously a crisis uh, across the city and across the country. Thanks, Bryce. Yeah, thanks, Mike. Thank you for listening. This podcast is part of the Homeland Project. We invite you to learn more about the project at homelandlab.com. Our work would not be possible without the support of MIGSVR and the Landscape Architecture Foundation's Innovation and Leadership Fellowship. To learn more about the tremendous work of LAF, please visit their website at lafoundation.org. Finally, we want to thank our friends at Yves for the use of their music. You can learn more about the band and find out about their debut album at thesoundofyves.com.